my name is Matt Curtihy, and I'm a partner at Water & Wall. We're a financial comms shop that works mostly in the institutional space, but then also some consumer finance as well. I just wanted to start off uh, anecdotally because um, every day I talk to my dad, we have our powwow sessions in the morning, and he's a uh, 75-year-old, semi-retired Wall Street guy, so you can imagine the animal. And um, we were talking about a quote we both saw in Time uh, or on Time.com that uh, a contributor wrote about what uh, President Reagan said in 1987, and I, I wanted to share with you the quote. So Reagan said at the time, perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize our common bond. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from the outside world. Now, I saw that thematically play out when I was a journalist at Forbes at the time of the financial crisis, which was an insane time to cover the media. I would imagine is just as insane as it is today. Uh, the thing, the reason why this, a comment like this one is relevant, and I wanna give you past, present, future tense in terms of comms, why it matters, is that because after moments in time like this, while we can argue all day how the financial crisis is different than the current crisis with the virus, and also how it's the same, in the comms world, here's what's the same. I mean, from a, from a communications point of view, there are two big ways that it changed. Um, there are right now media industry contractions, but more people than ever before are reading and watching and consuming media about brands that they never even heard of, maybe yours up until this date. And so what you see is, is that there are, one of the things we do at our agency is uh, journalist engagement. We build relationships with journalists and TV producers and so forth at outlets so you can get positive coverage for the business, right? So those jobs are vanishing like at a scary rapid pace. And a lot of industries can say that for the purposes of this. So we're gonna have fewer names to develop a relationship with on your behalf, but yet more people wanna hear about you and hear from you. I mean, one number that jumped out at me in the last week, CNBC reported their page view count just for the news. It was, their subscriptions was up 200%. And they had a billion page views in March alone, a billion. As a frame of reference, at its peak, Forbes had 20 million page views a month. I mean, that's just insanity. And if you think about the financial news and the landscape, I mean, this is where we're going. And then this is also, this is a big one. So that's just media, right? And this is a big one. And the part, the, the part that I think shocks the financial community a little bit Rarefied uh, and institutional corners of the financial markets are suddenly part of the vernacular, the language of the people. Suddenly, corners of the market that did not have a spotlight on it now do, and then they themselves find, you know, are in a position where they're explaining something about their business to someone they didn't consider a stakeholder yesterday. You know, this happened with, uh, with banking after the financial crisis. I mean, on a retail level, people understood what it is. You go to a branch, you exchange your money, you keep it there, it's, you know, that's how it works. But with institutional finance, suddenly you have regularly reported in the newspaper collateralized debt obligations, CMBS, and all of these terms that we didn't know yesterday. And now we do. 
what people should be thinking about from the public perspective. You need to communicate around your first circle, around your LPs, uh, with your media community. But what are some, maybe some mistakes that people made during the financial crisis in communications? And what can private equity, what can private credit, what can the others in the deal community be thinking that's really uh, tactical and that they can start implementing you know, this week and next week to control the narrative that's going out to the public? And that's what we tried to do, I think, in March when, when all of this started is everybody's looking for the government to give a response and to take action. The way I look at it is people are probably don't really understand how many, what percentage of businesses in, in North America are actually owned by private equity firms. Because private equity has so much dry powder available, it's just gonna, it's gonna continue to be more and more and more, especially when the public markets don't do a good job of valuing businesses, kind of sub a billion dollars, and especially manufacturing businesses. Uh, and that's that's a whole other conversation. But you know, in in March, uh, when the all the coronavirus you know activity had had gotten started, we had been following this from kind of mid January. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think there's people in the 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 firm that thought I was alarmist because you know we were already having travel restrictions, and you know we were having our operating team drive to portfolio companies, and and we were doing all this stuff early in February. Everybody was, you know, having this discussion about how this was going to impact, you know, the workforce. Having been an hourly worker myself, you know, I understood right away that part of the problem, the the commonality between this and the great financials is fear. You know, that's that's the one thing that is common, and that's the one thing that the the media likes to hype up, especially yeah. you know, the the mainline media. They like to, you know, fear mongering, if you will, because it drives ratings. We got real people that, you know, rely on our uh, uh, portfolio companies for jobs every day. And so, you know, the first thing we did is we circled the wagons with our CEOs. And my biggest concern of this whole crisis, my biggest concern in the, that I learned through the financial crisis, especially for industrial manufacturing businesses, which what we invest in at Middle Ground, is the retention of the workforce. That's my biggest concern is retaining the workforce so that when this virus is over, you know, or it's winding down, and there is an increase in demand that we're going to have the workforce available to to operate uh, our companies. And so that's why early in March, we came out and said, I think before anybody, uh, even any of the large companies, we said, look, if you're an employee at one of our portfolio companies, and you test positive for coronavirus or the flu, right, because both of those are things that uh, keep these hourly people um, uh, can keep them from earn, you know earning a wage, and if you're an hourly guy making fifteen dollars an hour, and you've and you've got a fever, guess what you're doing? You're going to work, because if not, you know you're not you're not making money for your family. And so we wanted to put them at rest early on, and we wanted to protect our employees, you know, our healthy employees, by saying, look, if you test positive for coronavirus or for flu, you know, we're going to pay you uh, for that time off that it that it takes to recover for the quarantine period. Um, we actually went out as a part of that, you know, some things we didn't publicize is we had all of our HR professionals go out in the community and identify how our employees could get tested to arrange for payment for the testing yeah. uh, and the procedures for the testing. You know, so, you know, we did all that to get out in front of it. Well, I think, A, I think our employees were able to take a big sigh of relief 
because we took away some of the fear, right? We took away some of the unknown. And so we were able to do that for them, uh, you know, early on. Uh, You know, look, I got, I have people, you know, sending me text messages and uh, commenting on LinkedIn and, you know, everything saying, you know, thank you. This, this is, you know, really important. It tells us that you're behind us and, you know, that you're there for us. It's been positive. You know, we followed that up this month. You know, we're taking this kind of a month at a time. In the month of April, we went further and we said, look, you know, if our facilities get shut down by the government, if they get shut down by, you know, demand by their customers paying our employees, we're offering, you know, kind of three solutions. You can come in and we'll provide you with work, uh, you know, so you can get paid. Still come to work. You can voluntarily, you know, uh, you know, take a, you know, a time off. Uh, or you can get, uh, take vacation, either one that you want to do. But John, we're trying to provide work to provide stable income for all of our employees, you know, across the portfolio. At least that's our mandate through the month of April. Now, mm-hmm. all of our companies are small businesses, and so we, we've got to watch every dollar. Other the, the, the broader private equity universe, how, how many others do you think are, are taking this type of action that you are to support the workforce? Uh, not enough. You know, I was hoping that ours would be kind of a call to arms for others. You know, other firms, it's funny, you know, uh, people that I know that follow our our, uh, feed, you know, they came out with posts that said, you know, our top concern is our shareholder value. You know who the number one person I got uh, in a a classification, the number one person that reached out to me and told me we were doing the right thing are investors. How have you managed communication with your LPs? What has been the, the channel, the frequency? You know, we have regular conversations. I mean, we, we talk to every LP on a quarterly basis anyway. And so, you know, as those conversations were ramping up in February and March, this was a part of the topic of the conversation. You know, we're always available. You know, we tell our LPs we're always available. If they send an email, they usually get a response from me within 15 minutes. Uh, you know, that response because, you know, they, you know, they're, they're trying to manage multiple managers. And so we want to be, you know, overly responsive, overly communicate, completely transparent. Going on the portfolio, the first thing I do is I send them the report. This is just an example. Every day, you know, we may be working from home, but our operating partners and, you know, our whole team, we're working with our every site. So we gather all of this data and information. We know the demand at our plants. We know how many people are showing up that are absent. We know, you know, how many people have the coronavirus. We know, you know, the reactions that we've, you know, had in the community. What would you encourage them strategically and tactically to advise their members to do so that the sponsor universe can start winning the narrative with Congress, start winning the narrative with the public? That's a great point. I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but the whole Paycheck Protection Initiative, uh, all private equity firm-owned businesses are excluded because of the affiliation rule. What I would advise, you know, I I was raised in a a large corporation at Toyota, that's where I started my career. And uh, one of the things that they did is they did a very good job training their executives. When you're operating a a facility that's, you know, $25 billion in sales, the, the facility in Georgetown, Kentucky, that site alone is like $25 billion in sales. So for every second that that manufacturing line's not down, you're literally losing you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So it's a very high pressure environment. But what Toyota always teach it, teaches is in a crisis, leaders take the long-term view. The bigger the crisis, the longer the view that you need to take. You know, but also 
the actions that we've taken is we believe that, you know, the long term is is keeping our businesses intact, keeping our workforce intact when our government is actually encouraging them to not work by giving them all this money. Some of these programs that are being out there are really disincentivizing the, the workforce because we buy industrial businesses that you can't manufacture the products if you don't have a workforce. And we were already having problems hiring people anyway. If we could, I'd love to hear Matt's perspective on, you know, because you work with large, like billion dollar asset managers, what would you think that the private equity universe needs to do from a communications perspective to reach big media so that these stories get out? What can large organizations like ACG and SBI do to get an effective message out to big media? Um, Because it's not really... Uh, I think at the forefront of the private equity versus mindset of Bloomberg and other media outlets, how do we get in touch and what's our messaging? Yeah. And actually my answer is going to riff on something John was saying um, throughout. So in terms of the long view and the crisis, the same applies to your communications. So a one-off LinkedIn post is not going to cut it. Just saying that we're out there and supporting our key stakeholders is not going to do it. It's, almost living the message and I don't want to sound sappy or too cloud nine or strategic about it. But the point is, is that you have to exercise that practice consistently, continually and, uh, and with purpose. And one thing that I didn't understand about private equity myself is that, and it just kind of all just gelled is that we as consumers differentiate between business and community and effectively it's the same particularly given how you're in every small business scenario and talking about, I mean, is intimately down to how a person thinks when they get a government check, a guy making 600 bucks a week. I mean, you know that kind of thing. And most people reading the newspaper every day don't grasp that. They think private equity, they think accredited investors, even though they don't know what that means, but they think wealthy. They think 1%. And that's something that we can lift the veil on with consistent communication about how it all works. You know, the small business and knowing enough about how we watch every dollar. I think that resonates with people. It resonates with their household income because each household is a small business. And then they'll better understand about how private equity works. So, but look, I mean, when we're thinking tactically for a second in terms of what people could do, now is a better time than ever to, uh, for what we in PR call owned media. In other words, the messages that you put out there on your own. You have ownership of them, whether it's a blog post on your website, whether it's a LinkedIn post, whether it's a tweet. Essentially, you control the message. And right now is the time to take advantage of that. But that comes with an exercise of knowing what that message is. Is Zooming, getting into a virtual room, and talking about what messages you want out there on a given brand. And those apply small, medium, large. This is universal stuff. I mean, there are nuances to each. You know, a trillion dollar asset manager is obviously a lot different than one that's middle to lower market, but at the same time, it's it's really not. Do you think that this is the time for people who are not using PR Newswire and other outlets to pay that twenty five hundred to get those five press releases? And it doesn't have to be a deal announcement, but it can be, you know, a portfolio announcement what they're doing because that's gonna be blasted out to big media. Is that a worthwhile investment or is it better to do to double up on your email strategy so you're reaching out to your your contacts. 
Look, I mean, my, our, my message wasn't for big media. My message was for our employees and for our investors. And, you know, that's what, that's where I was really targeting because those are the people that were, had, had the fear, you know, and were wondering what was going on. And, you know, look, when, you know, there's, I've noticed there's a couple of our investors on the call today. When invest, when an LP calls you, you know what they want. They want to know that you're in control and that you know what's going on in the portfolio. So by those, some of those reports that I showed you that I can, we can go through the detail. We didn't just make those because investors were calling us. We made them because, you know, those are what the tools that we use that we're using to manage the portfolio. And by being open and being transparent, you know, I even had some people say, hey, well, you sure you want to share those documents, you know, to every other PE firms? I'm like, there's nothing, there's nothing secret on there. What yeah, would you, you like to dive into right here? You can see Alco's sales. Look at Alco's sales are 86% is what they're focusing for the, for the month of, uh, for the month of um, April. Man, that's awesome. You know, given the current environment, they're 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 looking at eighty six percent. You know, so we look at that at everyone that cut the the businesses and the one that I didn't blank those out to the side. That's just the way that the it printed out. But you know, when as you scroll down the sheet, you can see the types of things that we're looking at. You know, and sharing that information with your LPs, having that complete transparency. Uh, and it's not always been that way. I've you know worked at another PE firm where we didn't share a lot of information. You know, I try to be completely transparent with our LPs and. You know, we um, we try to, you know, let them know we try to be completely transparent with our employees. Uh, you know, so our message was really not for big media. Um, you know, I, I again, you know, you know, there's some of those stories out there and, and it got picked up by a few of the industry publications. But, you know, it, it, you know, you know, I don't expect CNN or MSNBC or anybody like that to pick up these types of stories because it's it's not. But I think not, the responsibility is actually on the organization's who represent private equity to pick this up when they come across your feed, and then then they can um, they can they can shout that message louder and more effectively to the powers that either in Congress or in media. Um, is are there other parts on this sheet that you think are interesting to go through? Uh, you know, you can just you're scrolling through it. I mean, it just shows. Look, we're looking at headcount. We're you know we we're looking at coronavirus cases, and you know we've actually had three cases at, at Peterson over there. You can see. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, it's the only place where we've had any coronavirus cases to date. We're looking at total absenteeism. We're looking at plant utilization, uh, you know. Uh, and so, you know, it's been interesting. You know, we actually had to in in um, in the state of Michigan, um, you know, our uh, our corporate counsel work with our um, with our CEOs at our companies. But in some states like Michigan, you the employees need a letter. So when they're going out and they get pulled over by the police, which happens, that they can show, hey, I'm going to work at this essential operation, and this is why it's essential, and giving all those things to your workforce, empowering them, understanding all of these, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies. You know, the state of Michigan versus every other state uh, in, in the United States has been the most aggressive, kind of defining what is essential, and so it's the only state where we actually have closed facilities right now that have been deemed to be non-essential. Uh, and then the Mexican government came out last week and, you know, we're actually putting, you know, telling managers of, of businesses that we're going to put them in jail if they didn't shut their facilities down. And so, you know, uh, you know, so we're trying to stay on top of all of those things that are going on. Yeah. You know, our message is more for our employees. Uh, you know, the posts on LinkedIn, you know, I encourage all of our employees to follow our feed. You know, that way they can get real time information. You know, if there's things that we need to communicate you know, things that are going on. As we get more information about what's going on, we can give them more information about uh, what's going on. 
uh, and the same in communicating with our with our LPs. I was really disappointed though that um, there wasn't a lot of other PE firms that jumped on the bandwagon back in early March. I think it's something you know that you know when when an industry like private private equity can affect a lot of what goes on in the country. You know what? We don't need government regulation to tell us we need a fifteen dollar minimum wage. What we need is we need everybody in private equity to say, you know what, we're not going to pay people less than $15 an hour. We're going to make it part of ESG and we're going to start tracking how many of our employees make less than $15 an hour. And what we're going to try to do over time, we, we can't go and make everybody makes $10 an hour, make $15 an hour. That's not a sustainable model. But over time, we're going to get everybody's wages up to $15 an hour. You know, there's a lot of really positive things that private equity could be doing in just the normal course of their operations. That's what really, we're really focusing. You know, even before all this started, ESG was going to be one of our big focuses this year. And look, I'm an industrial, a North American industrial manufacturing business that says, I want to know what my carbon footprint is, every one of my portfolio companies. That's how things are going to change, not if we wait for government to, you know, for the pace of change to come from government, we're all going to be sorely disappointed. That's the first thing we do. When we introduce private equity, the first thing we do when we buy a company within the first two weeks, we go meet with all the employees. You've been there uh, and you've attended some of those meetings. We explain to them what private equity is and what it isn't. Over 80% of our fund being institutional investors, most of the beneficiaries of the work that we do are blue collar workers. Think about who benefits in retirement funds. Think about who benefits in insurance, you know, companies investing, health companies and hospitals and college endowments. The beneficiaries of scholarships are blue collar workers. When we go in and explain that to our workers, now they get it. And, you know, now they understand what they want, you know, us to make a profit. That's how all this works. Um, something to add to that, Jordan. Um, yeah. And this is um, more tactically speaking, I think will be helpful. We ran into a big issue recently with qualified opportunity zones. Um, you know, fast forward through the argument is that uh, best case scenario, it's, uh, it's an investment in a community and it's done so in a way where you um, do well by doing good. So to the point about, you know, abating soil and cleaning properties and things like that, just to make sure that facilities are clean and safe. Um, the same thing can be said about real estate deals as it relates to this qualified opportunity zones. What journalists needed, we found, for this particular client was an education because they didn't fully understand them, right? So that's the first thing, edification. You really need to empower these journalists and feel comfortable with having off-the-record conversations with them so then you feel confident to go on the record and tell them this is how it is. Now, what we did was, and again, tactically speaking, we picked our battles. We went to the journalists at the outlets that we knew were going to not necessarily be favorable to the argument, but at least be fair and balanced. And you're not more now than ever before. You're not going to get that across the board in media. Journalism is not about presenting five different voices and five varying degrees of an argument and then coming to center on something. It's just not the way it is. So you have to be smart and selective about who you approach and and that's what we've been really particular about with our clients, especially in these parts of, um, of financial services. So my recommendation would be to target, you know, from a media point of view, would be to target an outlet and a byline, a journalist, and try to develop a relationship with that person. Because 
as much as I said it was about owned media and pushing out LinkedIn's and blogs and things like that, you have to engage with these people who give you essentially a third-party endorsement because they're saying, okay, you're smart enough and successful enough for me to want to listen to you and then for me to share with the rest of the world what you have to say. But yeah, that's a great point. about it that is. And just kind of broadly speaking, can you maybe go through some specifics about like the type of content, type of things you have been speaking about that people can do before and during, before and after fundraising? You know, even when you're fundraising, you still have conversations, you know, with people, you know, look, we're, we're not about soliciting people to invest in our funds. And you know what? The average person out there can't invest in our funds anyway. You know, there, there's not, you know, public doesn't have access to these things. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of, even if I did, you know, have a commercial about investing in middle ground capital, who could actually do it, you know, but, you know, so you, there's a, there's a fine line to balance and, and, you know, we, you know, we go through training with um, uh, our a third party provider that provides us, you know, guidance on what we can and what we can't say. Uh, we use a group called adherence. I think as long as you're talking about substance, you're talking about things that are going on and you're really not actively soliciting people, there's a lot you can talk about. And, um, you yeah. know, uh, our goal is just to be more transparent and open and demystify private equity, you know, and let them know what we actually do at these facilities, give them access, you know, to our employees. You know, we, we have done a really good job. My partners and myself have done a wonderful job hiring some super smart people in our organization. And, you know, we're trying to give them opportunities, uh, you know, for people to, to know those people. Uh, and for those people to have some opportunities out there, and it's being recognized. Uh, announcement here, you know, probably before it goes out too many places, is, uh, you know, uh, Lauren Mulholland, our partner, she's just been recognized as one of the top 40 under 40 in private equity, uh, you know, and that's going to be coming out, you know, pretty soon. And so, you know, given exposure, you know, out there, and so I think our friendly relationship with the media, you know, answering questions, providing background, Matt, even when there's yeah. There's no article, you know, they're not talking about me specifically, but just giving them background on the situation and how it's impacting us and having that relationship where you trust that they're going to keep you on background. And you, you look back in the past 30 to 60 days, what is maybe one takeaway on things that you would have either not done differently, but um, a way to improve going forward? And then the second question is, for the next quarter, what are some things that you're keeping in front of mind uh, to kind of weather the storm? You know, one thing I wish we'd have done as an industry, you know, sooner is we should have had better communication with Washington uh, because of the, the programs that were, you know, the CARES Act and the PPP. Basically, all private equity-owned portfolio companies are not getting any of that aid. And there's massive layoffs going on. But, you know, so you, you think of that in one context, and then you think of, you know, this is, this is like, um, um, you know, one of the, the craziest things that I see out there is, you know, look at the movie industry, you know, the movie theaters. These guys were dying before this ever happened. And what did their CEOs do? They shut down the cinemas back in March through the end of April, even before anybody knew anything was going to happen. And then they go to Washington and ask for a bailout. Nobody needs to bail out the movie theaters. I mean, because now the movies are coming directly to our houses. But you got the, you know, so one thing we should have done different is we should have managed as an industry this much better. You've got these industries that are getting bailed out that don't need to be bailed out. 
if movie theaters don't survive this, guess what? We're all going to be fine at, at, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. And, and me and my family love going to movies. The theaters that weren't properly managing themselves and are using this as a, as a cop-out in order to get a bailout, which they did. They successfully, you know, are getting, it's ridiculous. So we should have done a better job of communicating, you know, our job, the jobs that, you know, a, a private equity industry, they're basically small businesses. They're all, I would say the majority of them are under 500 employees could have taken advantage of this program. Uh, it's a lot of them are industrial in nature. And that's something that we really need to be protecting in this country uh, is our industrial manufacturing base. If we're going to, you know, thrive in the future. So that's one thing I would do different, you know, over the next 90 days, boy, I wish I had an answer for that one. You know, I personally, I think that, you know, like I said, we're at kind of a crest. I think the federal government's going to try to ease things a lot quicker. I think the state governments are going to resist and I think they're going to be a lot slower uh, to uh, open the, the individual states back up. I think getting the auto industry back up and running is really, really important just because of how big it is. I've only got one portfolio company that's exposed to automotive, uh, but that one's been hit a little harder than the rest of them. Uh, getting some of those larger industries back in motion uh, sooner rather than later uh, is, is going to be a, a really important part of how the next 90 days play out. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody. Uh -huh. See ya.